So let's roll up our sleeves. Let's do life together. Let's have expectancy and hope around it. And let's make sure we do life together. Let's belong again. And the key to belonging is not just like kind of fixing the people around us and reaching out to them. The first step is looking in the mirror and loving what you see. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. So... We're cranking through here. We've got wonder and hope and immersion. John, what's the fourth pillar of that book? Because I'm excited for it. So last year, again, this is all research based on 2019, 2018, leading into it. But the majority of us, according to Cigna, did did a national study on how are we feeling about how we connect with one another. And 56% of us feel isolated. We feel as if we're doing life completely alone. Almost 90% of millennials feel as if they have no one to lean into. No, No true friend that they can do life with. They can share and they, they can grab beer and coffee with people, but they can't talk about sadness or depression or dream, like because that, that's too deep. It requires a, a true, honest, authentic relationship. And so there's this crisis around a sense of belonging. So sense number four is belonging. And uh, kids, <laughs> kids may say things that seemingly are inappropriate, but then they connect immediately, authentically right afterwards. And where I learned this one was, picking my girl up. Her name is Grace from kindergarten two years ago. Grace came over to me with her blonde hair, her purple rimmed glasses, hands me her backpack. Her friend, her new friend comes over right behind her, looks at me and says, looks at her friend and says, what happened to your dad? No kids don't pull any punches. What happened to your dad? And Grace says to her, what do you mean? For Grace, it's like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then the little girl goes, he's got puppy dog hands. What happened to your dad? Because ladies and gentlemen who are just listening, my fingers have been amputated to my knuckles. So I'm waiting for this thing to kind of play itself out. And Grace looks at my hands, looks at her friend and says, nothing happened to my dad. He just got burned it when he was a little boy, but he's doing fine today. And then this little girl looks at my hands. She looks at my face and she says, I'm glad you're doing fine today. And then she hands me her backpack and the two of them go off to play. You and I, Richard, have made a whole stink around the way people have hands that are different or skin tone that is different, or they worship differently, or they vote differently. How dare them feel differently about the world than I do? We build these tall walls and we want to build them taller if we possibly can. Kids are wrecking balls. They come right through that crap, that nonsense, that divides. It is nonsense. They come right through it. They remind us we are one. As the coronavirus was breaking, I was actually having a conversation with a physician on a couch in early January. And I said, man, is, is that going to come here? And he goes, man, that's not our problem. That's over there in China. That's their problem. Well, it's here now. And it's not their problem now. And what is true is this. What happens in one part of the world happens in the entire world. Life is never a vacuum. And we pretend like it is. We think we can isolate ourselves. We think we can somehow do life differently or vote differently. And the reality is what happens in one spot happens in all spots. Mm -hmm. We are, in fact, our brothers and sisters keepers. 
we are one. And the cool thing, if there is such a thing about the coronavirus, is it reminds us of this. We're one. We're one. And that can either make us really mad and make us want to build taller walls, or it can remind us we can do life differently once this thing fades. Because the good news is this, my friends, this is not our first pandemic. It's not the first crisis in markets. We've had this happen before. We've seen this movie play out. Since 1940 alone, we've had 13 market corrections of greater than 20%. We've had 12 to this point market rebounds of up to 28% within six months. So all history points to the fact that this too shall pass. Yes. You got to hang on for the ride. This is painful. This is truly painful. And this too shall pass. So let's roll up our sleeves. Let's do life together. Let's have expectancy and hope around it. And let's make sure we do life together. Let's belong again. And the key to belonging is not just like kind of fixing the people around us and reaching out to them. The first step is looking in the mirror and loving what you see. I mean, you have children. I don't know at what age your kids started brushing your hair, but I know you have, what, two four-year-olds? Four, four and seven, yeah. Your, your four-year-old yep. not brushing their hair right now. Your seven-year-old might be, but by age eight, they are. Yeah. At some point, they start to become vain. They start to develop ego. Our job as leaders is to stop brushing our hair, to stop caring so much about how the world sees us and to start loving the way we see ourselves in doing so the world will love you too. You know, we we think when we graduate high school that our needs to be accepted are going to fade. And that's just not true. You and I are older, more seasoned men, and we still glance in the mirror hoping that we are enough. Kids don't wonder. They know. They know for fact they're enough. They're loved. They're perfect. God made them just right. Uh, crazy hair and all, smelly breath and all. Kids are just right. And so I encourage you to brush your teeth. I encourage you to occasionally shower and brush your hair. <laughs> Maybe wash your hands more frequently than we have been. But, uh, but recognize as you glance in that mirror, you're enough. And your job now that you know that is to remind those around you that they are as well. That I, I am loving this. And, and I wonder if we could take a deeper dive, John, in terms of what the research is saying that we have to do other than the looking in the mirror and, and recognizing we're enough to break down some of those really tall walls you talked about. So it goes back in, in part. And so it begins with the self around recognizing, in fact, that you are enough. So if you, part of the story I shared in this is uh, in the book in all a, a story. I, I was a hospital chaplain 15 years ago at a, a place where people were dying of heart disease. And so I walk into this room, uh, the man who was laying in bed, is not, no, not much longer for this world. There's no flowers in the room. There are no pictures in the room. There are no cards in the room. So clearly you can kind of identify what's happening with this guy. He's dying by himself. And so we visit for about an hour. My job is not to evangelize. It's just to love him. It's just to encourage him. It's just to be his friend. That's the role of a chaplain, actually, just to love people. So I, I, uh, I like that role very much. It was great. So I'm on the side of his bed visiting with him. And he said, John, if you'd seen me three years ago, you would have seen a man who was on top of the world. I had a strong business. I had a great life. But in pursuing all of these things, I lost the things that actually mattered most to me. Uh, I was on the road so much that I eventually lost my marriage. In that, I started to turn to things that self-medicated me. I turned to cigarettes, I turned to alcohol, and I turned to drugs. In those decisions, I lost not only my health, but I lost the relationship with my girls and eventually my business itself. And then he looks out the window he like coughs. He turns back. He looks up at me, Richard, and he says, John, I've made it to the end of my life. I've climbed to the very top of this ladder. And I realized as I made it to the top rung that I had the thing leaning against the wrong damn wall. And I'll never forget that. 
John, I've made it to the end of my life. I've climbed, climbed to the top rung. And I realize now I've had the thing leaning against the wrong damn wall. So here's the beautiful thing that happens during periods of adversity, like the one you, are, you and I are currently living in. We get to evaluate again right now. Uh, first of all, have we been enough? Do we feel as if who we are is enough? What wall are we leaning our ladder against? And is it indeed the right wall? Are we enough? Looking backward, have we felt as if we are enough? What might allow us to feel that way going forward? So the very first way to break down this silo that many of us are living in, this feeling of isolation, is to recognize that you are enough, but you might have to make some pivots to turn into it. So uh, I would just encourage all of us right now, during this period of uncertainty and angst and, and uh, fear, as, as panic spreads, to use it as a time of self-reflection, to reflect on the wall that you are leaning your ladder against and to identify, is it the thing that matters most? An exercise I do with clients that we serve is if your life was on fire, and you guys are welcome to steal this, if your life was on fire and you had an opportunity to run in and grab a couple things that really matter, what would you grab? And most of us don't say, Man, I'd grab my bank account. I'd certainly grab my title. I'd grab my 40 to 60 hours of work. I'd, I'd grab all this stuff that we work so hard on. When life burns, because I've been through a house fire now twice, when life burns, that's not the stuff you grab. You grabbed your loved ones. For those of us who are being a little bit more uh, thoughtful, you probably grab your faith. You probably grab your memories because you can rebuild. So you're going to grab your memories. You're going to grab your character. You're going to grab your kids. You're going to grab some loved ones. You're going to grab the stuff that matters, the stuff that um, everything else, you'll let it burn. And yet the majority of our effort, if you're being honest about it each day, is focus on the stuff that at the end of the day, you don't care about. We work really, 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 really hard for stuff that when you're being real during periods of uncertainty, you would let burn. You would let burn. I've had two fires, like I've mentioned, one that I got burned, the other that just destroyed everything that was in it. But man, uh, there was nothing that was burned that I can't replace. And I think during this period of great change in many of our lives, I'm not telling you, hey, baby, let it burn. But um, it might remind you of the things that matter and the things that don't so that you can rebuild your life leaning, leaning your ladder against the right wall. Hey, guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. That's really beautifully said, John. And, and if you've ever met anybody who lives in a coastal city that deals with hurricanes, right it's the same thing, right? Like you know, you, the house isn't on fire yet, so to speak, but basically when a hurricane's coming and you have to evacuate and you've got a Mini Cooper, you know, there's only so much space, right? You yeah. fit in the car and you've got a house and you have to figure out what do you take? You're taking your kids, you're taking your pets and probably not much else. So you're it really pictures, right? You're taking... You know, I've, I, I, so we do a podcast. I always ask guests, what's the one thing you would grab? And sometimes it's a laptop phone, like one thing outside of and pets and, and family. 
laptop, pets, uh, passport, birth certificate. Some people are very practical. But oftentimes, Richard, I hear people say things like uh, a lady recently, a strong business owner, a very significant wealthy person, says, I would grab uh, a plastic statue of Jesus. That's kind of odd. Why let that baby burn? Go to Walmart on your way out of Dodge and pick up another plastic statue. And she said, "I think you're missing the point. The plastic statue was my was my mother's. She had nothing. She had nothing. But with one of her small paychecks, she went out and she bought this little statue, and it sat on her windowsill. We didn't have a whole lot of food. We never took a vacation. She didn't get any day, any days off. But that plastic statue reminded her and her kids what actually mattered in life." And she said, and if everything in my life was burning and you told me my kids and animals were safe, the one thing I would grab is this one 99 cent plastic statue of Jesus. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we are reminded when the hurricane winds are blowing or the, when the winds of change and they are upon us are upon us, what actually matters. Yes. And here's the cool thing. The hurricane passes. The insurance will allow us to rebuild. The coronavirus will eventually subside and we're going to be able to rebuild our lives. My goal and my hope for all of us is that we do not forget the lessons that are being taught of us right now. Remember, my friends, not only during this season, but afterwards, what matters in your life? Because uh, you can rebuild a life on that stuff. That is so beautifully said, John. Well, you've been inundating us with such, <laughs> such wisdom, and, and I've been just loving everything we've talked about. Let's, let's talk about that fifth, fifth part of In Awe. So, I mean... For me, it's pretty obvious. It's, it's freedom. Mom and dad of the kids across the street probably did not even know those kids were outside. They're being homeschooled. Mom and dad are on conference calls in the basement. And these kids decide to grab, a, one's a girl, one's a boy, a one-piece swimsuit and a pair of swim shorts, go outside, get the hose on, find the sprinkler, 56 degrees, overcast clouds, and they're running through it, having the time of their lives. Freedom, baby. Mel Robbins, freedom. There's a lot of great music. You can download this later on around freedom. Freedom is what we long for. Freedom. Kids have it. It's why when you're having a dinner party, uh, they unabashedly sometimes come down in their tidy whities because they, they had a nightmare and they want you to put them back to bed. Freedom. They don't care what somebody thinks about them. Freedom. So uh, I think what we long for as we wrap this final five, the fifth sense up is this gift of the sense of freedom. As, a, as little ones, we had perfect eyesight, the perfect ability to hear and taste and touch and smell. And as we age, Richard, you know this, my friend, you begin to lose all those senses. We also tragically lose the sense of belonging. We lose the sense of immersion. We lose the sense of expectancy or hope. And we lose that sense of wonder. We also lose the sense of freedom. But we don't have to lose any of those senses. We can return to each and every one of them. And so in awe is a reminder, not only what it felt like, or those who are really sage, wise teachers among us. I had a 98-year-old business owner, 98, who taught me about freedom, taught me about the gift of showing up every day. So you don't need to be nine years old in your front yard, in a swimming suit, in a sprinkler to experience freedom. You can be on a podcast. You can be uh, struggling financially. But understanding again, man, we're going to talk about freedom. We're going to live into it. And we're going to learn the lessons from today and make sure we don't forget them tomorrow. The greatest generation, they were great, not because they endured the Great Depression or because they went off to war and they won it. The greatest generation in my mind were great because they never forgot the lessons that were taught to them during those periods of great uncertainty and great adversity. 
when they returned, they remained humble. They remained together. They remained faithful. They remained bold. They remained brave. And they remained that way until they passed away. So as we move toward our finish line during this podcast, I just, I beg you guys to endure this storm, to recognize that this too shall pass, but also to refuse to forget the lessons being taught of you right now. We're, we're all enduring the storm, all of us. I mean, how cool, every one of us around the world, first time for this. We're on the same page together, baby, belonging finally together, one world. We all got the same DNA. We all got, in my mind, we all got the same dad. We all got the same dad. Don't forget the lessons being taught as this virus passes, as the economy returns, as unemployment begins to uh, come back to life. So uh, just hang on, hang on during these seasons, but don't, don't miss the lessons being taught of you right now. I, I, I love that. And I, that, that's beautiful, the way that you phrase that. But I, I, I want to make sure that we give enough time to really dive into freedom, because I think freedom means different things to different people. And I'm curious, as you were preparing this book, as you were writing this book, talk to us about some of the research you came across about how freedom impacts people in different ways. So the whole, it's almost like uh, the summation. So I was an accounting major in, in, uh, in college. And I, what I learned in accounting, that was lousy at it. I, I don't like math as a young man. I certainly don't like it as an older guy. But I learned that numbers at the bottom of, of a page must add up. And then you carry that number to the next page. Those of you who have done a tax return lately, you know how this goes. So page one, it becomes the first number on page two. And eventually you're on page like 64, but all the numbers are connected all the way down the document. And it's going to lead you to the final number, whatever that number is, positive or negative, that you're going to have on this tax return. So is true with freedom. Freedom is the summation of everything else added up. It is what happens when you live wonder. It is what happens when you live expectancy. It is what happens when you live immersion. And it is what happens when you live with this great sense of, drum roll please, belonging. Freedom is the net result. And in my own life, Richard, I, I, I lived a tethered life, a fake life, a feigned life for the majority of my life. There was a man who stepped into my journey uh, when I was in the hospital. His name was Jack Buck. And I told you a little bit of the story years ago and you're on episode 75. Jack Buck was a radio announcer for St. Louis he was a Hall of Fame human being and a Hall of Fame announcer. And he came into my hospital bed on day two of me recovering. But recovering for me meant I was tied to a bed. I could not see. My eyes were swollen shut. I could not breathe. I was trait. And I had no real opportunity for life beyond a few more minutes, probably. And Jack made a commitment to me that if I got out of this hospital bed, he would celebrate my survival at John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. And he said, kid, as he left the room that day, keep fighting. He was told by the staff that the little boy was going to die when he left that day. No reason for hope, back to sense too. But Jack had endured the Great Depression. He understood the power of hope. Jack had endured World War II. He picked up a couple Purple Hearts in the Battle of the Bulge. Jack understood the power of showing up and being fully immersed. So the following day, Jack showed up again for me. Kid, keep fighting. When you get out of here, we're going to celebrate John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. Long, beautiful story, truncated down in the essence of time. Every day for the next five months, a very busy man visited a little nobody named John O'Leary in hospital. When everybody else, many of them giving up on this kid, Jack kept showing up, kept showing up. Jack then had John O'Leary date the ballpark. He eventually saw that my hands were broken. I was unable to hold anything with them. Taught me how to write again by sending me a baseball every single day saying, kid, if you want a second baseball, just send a thank you letter to the guy who sent you the first one. 
So on day one of recovery, this time now late in August, I pick up a pen for the first time since being burned in January, now nine months later, and I write my first letter to Ozzie Smith, a Cardinal shortstop, a Cardinal Hall of Famer, mail it off two days later, I got a second baseball, and then a third baseball, and then a fourth baseball. And then by the end of that summer, 60 baseballs, teaching a little nobody that there's no such thing, that every life is sacred, that every life matters, but you got to pick up the pen and write freedom. So I learned how to write. Then Jack, when I graduate college, shows up with his crystal baseball that he received when he went into the Hall of Fame. It is priceless. It is an heirloom. I'll send a picture of you so you can show it on the show notes if people want. But it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And now it's in my house. This should be in his son Joe Buck's house. Joe's an, an announcer and a celebrity in his own right. But Jack gave this ball to me. Then Jack gets Parkinson's disease, which is my, the same disease my dad has. He gets lung cancer. He spends five months in hospital at the end of his life. So now the question to you, class, it's all being set up to this. How many times does John O'Leary, as a young man, age 24, show up in Jack Buck's life while he's in hospital for the same amount of time that as a nine-year-old, John was in hospital? And you would imagine the answer is, I bet you went every day. And I bet if for some reason you're out of town, I bet you called him. And the answer, Richard, painfully and tragically is zero times. Because I wasn't free. It's not because I was busy. It wasn't because I was ungrateful. It was because I never felt worthy of the gifts that Jack gave at any point along the way. And if you don't feel like you are enough, and if you don't feel like you are worthy, then you're not free to give it back. You're living bound to the chains that tied you to a lie. So I was bound to these, this lie that Jack had better friends than me. I wasn't free. It was a lie. It was a big old mask that I was wearing. The family invited me to his funeral. This is just, it's a cruddy story, but it's my truth. And I think it's many of our truths. I parked my car with my tie on as a 24-year-old. I looked to my left and I saw Dan Dudorf, a radio announcer, a Hall of Fame football player, and now a CBS announcer getting out of his Mercedes. And then I look to my right and I see the, the, the Cardinals ownership group getting out of their car. And I look around this parking lot of this big Presbyterian church and I realize, dude, these are all celebrities. I'm not. These are all his friends. I'm not. And so rather than getting in and getting out of my car and living freely, I put my seatbelt back on. I put my car in reverse and I back out of my friend's funeral because I'm not free. And I made it about a mile down the street before I pulled over on the shoulder and just wept. And it was like an hour long, dirty, ugly cry with snot coming down onto my sport coat. And it was painful and it's something I'll never forget. But it's also the turning point in John O'Leary's life. Because up until that point, I wasn't living free. I'd never told anybody how I got burned. I'd never been back into a hospital because I don't want to go back into a place that scarred me so terribly. I'd never really told anybody that they mattered to me. Not really, because you don't do that kind of stuff at age 24. So leaving that funeral, realizing that I can't yet go back into Jack's life. I went to my grandma and grandpa's house, which was right down the road. Uh, without even being invited in, I rang the doorbell. They came to the door. You would have thought it was like the publisher's clearinghouse. Ed McMahon was at their front door with a check for $10 million. They started crying just when they saw me. They said, John, what are you doing here? You never just stop by. And I wanted to let them know that they were my heroes and that I loved them. And we had a three-hour lunch together that day. When I left that day, I called my mom and dad and asked if I could take them out to dinner that night. I told mom and dad, I'll get emotional telling you that they were my heroes, that they were with me every single day for five months in hospital. And I never even said thank you. 
So as a 24-year-old guy, I got to tell my mom and dad that they were my heroes, that I loved them. I'm grateful for them, which was awesome. I then called Jack's wife, Carol. And I said, Jack, can I I take you out to lunch, Carol? So I took the widow out to lunch and I told her the story of what her husband had done for me. And the entire time, this woman is weeping, not with tears of grief, but with tears of life. And she said to me, John, you brought my husband back to life for a little while today. I wanted to thank you for that. And then I took his son, Joe, out to lunch. Joe's a celebrity. It was a painful call to make because I don't feel like I'm enough usually in life. But I felt like I was enough that day to at least have the freedom to call Joe. And I said, Joe, I want to take you out. I want to tell you something. So I, I wrote Joe the letter that I should have written his, his dad. So the letter begins with the words, Dear Jack. And then it goes on for three pages. And it, it's a love letter to his dad. And I'm in total tears while I'm reading this letter that I should have read aloud to Jack. I don't have time anymore, but I have the opportunity to read it to Joe. And I look up from time to time, now Joe's weeping. And I give it to him and I said, Jack, or I said, Joe, when you talk to your dad next, let him know I love him. I'm sorry, but I'm going to try to spend the rest of my life making it up to him. I'm free now. And then I go on and I become a hospital chaplain. I never even went back for doctor's appointments because I hate hospitals, but I'm free now. So I'm free to love kids. And I told you the story of the old man. That was for my training. But I spent three years working with kids, reminding them that there's reason for hope, able to sit at their bedside as a living example that the prognosis does not have to determine what happens next. I'm free. I'm free enough to uh, see hands that are broken, but to still ask a girl on a date. And after facing rejection from her, asking her again and again and again, and until eventually my, my current wife says, fine, I'll go out with you because I'm free. I'm free. And so my friends, today I have the opportunity of traveling the world as a guy with no fingers, with scars from his neck to his toes, who is stared at sometimes when he walks into the room. But when they stare at first, why they keep staring is not because he's broken, but because he's fixed, because he's got joy, because he's got hope, because he belongs, because he's got ultimately what everybody else is longing for in their life. And the reason I have all that is this painful experience of being a cruddy, lousy friend to Jack not being enough back then myself, but now I belong. Now I go through life with wonder. Now I go through life with expectancy. Now I'm fully immersed in the moment, which ultimately, here's the summation. I'm free. I'm free indeed. And this is what we are all longing for. So uh, I hope part of this story of freedom reminds people of the weight that they walked into this podcast with this chain that bound them to mistakes of yesterday or a bank account that is not enough or a marriage that has fallen apart or an addiction that has chained them to who they once were, but doesn't have to chain them to who they can become next. So uh, we have an invitation every day to return to childhood, which reminds us that you are enough, that you are good and that the best is yet to come. This is freedom. This is freedom. So I got it um, through my faith walk, but I think I also have it just through the journey through life. I'm free and free indeed. There are almost no words to describe how powerful that story was. And I am in awe of you. <laughs> so I, I have tremendous respect and, and gratitude for you for coming on today again, sharing all of this with people listening. Uh, I wish we could record this for another four hours. <laughs> phenomenal as, as was our first conversation. But John, we, we are at time. And as you know, I ask everybody who comes on this show their biggest helping, and that is the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation mm. today. So I did know that. I'd forgotten <laughs> that question was coming. I think it's, it's twofold. Number one, 
How do we stay in touch with John? We're offering something right now called the 21-Day Challenge. It's free. It's a gift. We're trying to inspire people to believe in hope again. And so uh, if you are sick of reading the headlines and sick of seeing it in your social feed how cruddy everything is, me too. So join me because there's a different perspective in all of this. I think it's the perspective of truth. So click on over to readinawe.com. That's readinawe.com. Spot for your little email at the tippity top of that page. Click send and I'll take care of the rest. Over the next 21 days, we're going to do life together. We're going to go deeper into what we're talking about right now. So readinawe.com. That's one thing I hope people might receive from this conversation and from the work we're doing. The other is this, man. I love, I love space. I love astronomy. I write in that about the pale blue dot in the book In Awe. The, I mean, I won't even unpack it. Next time I'm on your podcast, we'll talk about the pale blue dot. It's unbelievable. Take a picture of the Earth taken from the Mercury a couple billion miles away from home. That ought to change the way we see our problems and our opportunities. Uh, so that's one piece. But the other piece is this. 563 astronauts have returned from the heavens, and all of them return changed. Research calls this, they come back with a sense of awe, awe, because they recognize after seeing the world through the lens that they saw through, whether it's for a couple hours or for a couple months in, in the heavens, looking down at Earth, how magnificent this place is, how interconnected we all are. And they, when they return, are permanently changed because they go through life with a sense of awe. The coronavirus will shake us. It will scare us. It will erase some of our life savings. It might change what we do professionally, but it can also wake us up to see life as the interconnected piece that we all do life together as one. And my hope as you leave this this podcast, and as you hear the the great work that John O'Leary is trying to do with the help of his team, that you leave this podcast, that you enter into your day with a sense of awe, with a sense of awe. You have returned back to earth when this podcast returns, uh, when it stops playing. Let it change you, though. It it can inspire you. It can motivate you. You can high-five. It can be a short pep rally. And then you can get back into the monotony and the misery of your day. Or, astronauts, you can return permanently changed. And it is truly my hope that this has transformed you, not because of how great I am, but because of how great your life is. And the truth remains, the best is in front of you. So, astronauts, listeners, friends, your life is good. Your life is a sacred treasure. This headwind shall pass, and the best is yet to come. So well said, John. This has been a, an absolute honor, and I've loved every second of our discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. Oh, brother. I mean, I love your work. I love your heart. I love your kids. And uh, keep going. The, the time has never been more important to do the work that you are doing. Thank, thank you for that. And for everybody who's staying strong at home listening to this, thank you as well for checking out this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, but that's what helps other people find the show, become inspired and make changes in their lives that are so necessary right now. But most importantly, go do something nice for somebody else today. I know that we're all homebound, but we've got cell phones and we've got internet. We have a way to connect people all over the world, like John talked about the way he told his parents they were their heroes. Go do something incredible for for somebody else who's not expecting it. Post it in your social media using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 